0: Well, this afternoon, uh, we're going to be continuing in our first Sunday psalm series today, finishing up the 31st psalm. We looked at the 31st psalm as a psalm that goes back uh, and forth between lament and complaint and trouble to expressing trust and assurance and jubilation in the Lord. And that theme continues today. But before we get into that, let's uh, turn our attention to the psalm itself. Let us hear from God's word as we hear the 31st Psalm. Psalm 31, to the choir master, the Psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, for you are my name's sake, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servants. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strifes of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we have here heard your word, and we pray, O oh Father, that you would guide us as we engage in the study of your word. We pray that you would help us to receive what your word says here, as we have just read, in accordance with what it is, your holy word, and to receive it by faith, and to receive it with joy, and to receive it, O oh Lord, with faith. And Father, I pray that you would rest upon us today. We pray that you'd rest upon each of us as we seek to study this text. We pray that you would guide us into your truth that is here, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus, grow in our faith that it might be strengthened and increased. We pray that you'd rest upon this servant, that he might clearly declare what your truth is, and to do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. And that you might, O oh Lord, chain him to your truth, that is your word, that he might freely declare that truth with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As mentioned earlier, this psalm, the 31st Psalm, is another is one of many psalms that is a combination of lament or complaints, expression of trouble, and by complaint, I don't mean Complaining in the sense in the way that Israel got into trouble. But expressing a concern to God saying this is happening to me. Compl- uh, say, please help me. And also goes back and forth and also goes uh, switches from that to an expression of trust. Of assurance and jubilation in the Lord our God. Uh, it is unique in that it goes from a sense of anguish to a sense of assurance twice. It goes back and forth. Many of the Psalms that have this back and forth do it once. And here it does it at least twice. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 8. And we looked, saw the anguish and assurance cycle there in general terms. In verses 9 through 23, which we're going to look at today, speak of that cycle with more focus. Verse 13 and verse 6 in this psalm are quoted verbatim in Jeremiah and and, uh, Jonah, respectively. Jonah, when he was uh, seeking that uh, he might get out of... When he might get out of declaring to Nineveh the impending judgment because he says they're idolaters and... They don't deserve to be gotten out of judgment. Of course, failing to see that he himself was deserving of judgment. And verse 5 is quoted verbatim in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23, verse 46, by Jesus as he breathed his last, for he said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. As he died, he cried that. And here, David in this psalm is expressing that. And so thus, this psalm is then explicitly, explicitly stated in a sense in which it is declaring to us, this is also declaring to us Christ Jesus in his death and in the hope that we have in Christ. This psalm is also what we call messianic. that same verse is also alluded to in 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 19 which we uh, touched on last time in 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 19 therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good Whatever the, the whatever the trial is that David is experiencing, this psalm speaks of his anguish in that. Or it's a representation of his difficulties and persecutions in general. While we don't know the particular instances, we mentioned last time that we could pore over different commentaries throughout history and all speculate on the instances. The inscription on the psalm does not give us the instance, so... Um, And there's nothing in the psalm that seems to identify a particular instance. So all of that would be what we would call speculation. Some of the speculation would be more informed than other speculation, but it is still speculation. So we're not going to. So that's my way of saying we won't touch that. Verses one through five, we saw that there was a cry for help along with a confession of faith in who God is. And in verses six through eight, we saw that uh, there was the the assurance in recounting God's faithfulness that he would um, deliver him based upon a history of God's faithfulness. He said, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. And now here in verses nine through twenty three, we see a continuation of that. He opens up in verse 9 with an opening word of prayer. In which he expresses a need for God to act with him according to his graciousness. Be gracious to me for I am in distress. So once again, the psalmist. In the context of him being the psalmist, David understands his neediness and his weakness in asking God for grace. He does not say here, give me according to. To my merits. He does not say, I have done perfectly right, so thus give me what is due to me. Our psalmist says, Be gracious to me. Give me that which is not due to me, but rather give me grace. You see, our Lord, it's a recognition that our Lord rescues the weak from those who are greater than them. In the case of humanity, he rescues us from our sinfulness in Christ Jesus. The very appeal for grace here is a sign of the psalmist recognizing his own weakness. Such an appeal, contrary to conventional wisdom, glorifies God. For we often think that the glory of God is found in uh, feats of human strength and in our ingenuity. But often our feats of strength and our ingenuity also can oftentimes result in devastating consequences that don't honor God. Rather, it's not in those great human feats of strength by which God is glorified by us, but rather by demonstrations of his strength in our weakness. For in Christ Jesus, he glorified himself through the weakness of the cross. And so he does so in us. You see, our, def- our default mode of existence is to delight in our strength and to hide our weakness. How often do we find ourselves experiencing difficulty and pain and weakness and someone comes up to you and we pull out the, we pull out the inner Briton in us and put on the stiff upper lip and say, I'm fine. Because we have a felt need to hide our weakness. Because that opens us up. I've spent some time learning about influential figures in history. Not necessarily just church history. But one, you, one thing you see in some of them is a grave fear of being perceived as having weakness. Very recently I spent some time learning about uh, both of the Roosevelt's in our history. In, in the history of our country, the Teddy and the FDR and both of them in their stories had weakness. And they thought, I hope no one ever finds out about this. Or when they found themselves ill, they'd say, I'm not fit for anything because I'm ill and thus I'm weak. My life is forfeit. When one of them lost the use of his legs, he wrote in his diaries that he was of no use due to his illness and he was no longer fit. But you see, that's not just them. That's us. That's us. We want to hide our weakness and put on that stiff, that stiff upper lip, lip, even before God, and say, I got this. But here the psalmist says, no. I don't got this. In a proper grammar. I don't have this. And so, thus, he's reflecting the truth that we see in a nearby psalm, in Psalm thirty-five, verse ten, which the other night was one of the. In addition to other readings, my wife and I will uh, read a verse of the day. And. This one, I said, oh, this one needs to make it into my sermon sometime. And it so happens it fits this sermon. Psalm 35, verse 10, it says, And all my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Now, why is he asking for grace? What is his perceived weakness here that is an actual weakness, a sense of need? It's because he's in distress. He says, Be gracious to me, for I am in distress. And he explains that distress. And he explains it in terms that are very poignant with intense language. You see in verse 9. And ten, we see this language that he's using to the estate that he finds himself in. And he's essentially saying, I have nothing to give. He says, my eye is wasted away from, by grief. My eye is wasted from grief. What often does grief bring about? Tears. Tears. It brings about tears. So yes, here David, whom we might look at the scripture as the manliest of men, shed tears. It was kind of a resurgence in Christian circles that this idea that men have to be so strong that they don't ever shed tears. But here we see David expressing his grief. That he is in immense pain and such grief that he has cried to the point that his eyes are wasted away. They are in pain. His grief is that intense. His suffering affects not only his body, but also his soul. It is sapping him of, yes, his physical strength. It is also sapping him of his mental and his emotional fortitude. In what he is facing. For we hear this intense language that he expresses. My soul and my body also. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. No doubt David spent much time in his life in much sorrow when we read the account. We often think of David in his victories of when he defeated Goliath or in the number of occasions such as when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem or when he defeated enemies. We often forget the intensity of his difficulty and his grievous. Circumstances even before he became king when Saul was chasing him down. When his own son abandoned him and turned on him and led a rebellion against him and nearly killed him. Or, as we'll see in a moment, when he experiences the grief even because of his own sinfulness. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. I've recently been doing some reading in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes expresses those kinds of things. Life is spent with much sorrow. There's also much joy in life, but there's much sorrow in life. And we are lying to ourselves. If we go to the Lord and say, or we go to one another and say, I got this. Because we don't got this. But notice also the psalmist says here in verse 10. He does not consider himself as having merit. And he sees himself as no less sinful Than his opponents as no less sinful than his opponents. What does he say? Why does he say his strength is failing? My strength is failing because of my iniquity. Iniquity is another word because of sinfulness, because of fall, because of failings, because of shortcomings before God. My strength fails because of my iniquity. know, David, very well, while well, he had many things to his credit in terms of his activities and things that he did, he was far from a man who had perfection. He was a man who engaged in an explicit and a very malintentioned effort to take the wife of another man. remember that story he was up upon his place high up and he and he saw a woman doing what a woman does bathing and they didn't have hidden bathrooms they were on the roofs you have a bad history of blaming Bathsheba for that whole thing but she was just doing the things that she would normally do and he saw that and he sent his servants and it says they took her into his presence of course, we know what happened there. But then, of course, it was going to come out that he it was going to become pretty clear that there's something going on here because she was with child. So then he tries to arrange to make it look like it's Uriah's child, but no, that didn't happen, so he decided to ensure Uriah would die. and i can only think of him being in a situation in that situation afterwards when he's presented with you must face judgment for this and saying my strength fails because of my iniquity and while whatever is happening to him he may not be specifically guilty of the specific things that his opponents are doing and or accusing him of, of which they are accusing him he is not without blame for he has iniquity He did not fall prey, as is very common, at least in this circumstance, for us to fall into and to stand over those who oppose Christ and oppose us as though we are somehow better than them. He doesn't come to this as the Pharisee in Luke 19, but he comes as the tax collector. For in Luke 19, we hear he also told this parable of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice how that Pharisee says he trusted in themselves. And in his prayer, he says, I thank you that I am not like these other people. He used God to consider himself as better than other people. So to look down on someone else as if we are somehow better than them. Or more or more worthy of God's favor. Whether it be because of our own perceived righteousness, which is but filthy rags. Or whether it be because we have a higher standing in in life or such. And even if we give credit to God for us being in that state, it is a statement of pride. And he's appealing to God on the basis of grace. We see humility in this statement. We see here that his distress is also bound up in the reproach that he's facing on account of his adversaries. For he says in verse 11, because all my adversary of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the streets flee from me. Take note what we see here. He's become a reproach. That is, people do not wish to be associated with him. Because of what his adversaries are doing, of what his adversaries are accusing him. So much that even his neighbors, those who are near to him, those whom he would probably call his friends, are saying, I don't know him. I'm not his friend. And there's scheming that is occurring against him. One particular commentator, he sees in this distress a perception of abandonment by God. And yet later we'll see when he says, turn your face towards me. That he has, because he says later, turn your face towards me, we see a sense of abandonment by God and of no longer being of any use to him. And David, of course, looking forward. In this psalm, looking forward, did not our Lord Jesus Christ find himself in distress? Did he not find himself abandoned by his friends? Did he, did he not find his friend One who stood up and said, Though all these others around you might deny you, no, I am going to stand strong. Only probably a few hours later, when someone said, Hey, weren't you with him? And said, No, mm, that was not me. Our Lord Jesus was reproached even by his friends. He was subjected to all of these things. We think of him in the garden even before uh, before he was betrayed. We see him in intense prayer to where he is expressing to the Father his great distress and what's coming such that he sweat. and that he uh, that he cried as and that there were there was blood and he experienced the pain of the crucifixion and he experienced the mental and emotional abandonment and while he had no iniquity he suffered so because our iniquity was upon him for First, second Corinthians 521 says he became sin on our behalf for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see this is true of Christ in his humiliation. His humiliation being not only his betrayal and arrest and death and burial, but the entirety of the incarnation was him humbling himself. He was abandoned in distress, worn out, schemed against, shamed, all for our sake. There was even humility, for he looked down upon the cross and those who were mocking him. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, expressing what he was doing upon the cross to forgive those who were his mockers, that they would become to him by faith. And he did find deliverance for he was risen from the dead. And by his work. What has he done for us such that we can go to God and say, be gracious to us. Be gracious to us. Because oh, how we need that grace. So we have an understanding of this when we ask God to be gracious to us. We understand it through the one who suffered all of this for us. While our iniquity plague plagues us, it has been bound up in Christ Jesus. Though our friends might betray us, leave us, scheme against us, there is Christ. Though great powers might stand against us, we need not fear the judgment of any man because there is Christ. Furthermore, the grace of Christ tells us that we don't get to look down on anyone. Clement of Rome, in one of his letters, he says, let your children take part in the instruction that it, that is in Christ. Let them learn how powerful with God is humility. In commentating on this passage. Rather, like Christ, we're called upon to pity those who do not know him and to desire that they might join with us in his company nor does this such sorts of suffering give us the occasion to lash out in anger and hatred. Rather, what Christ has given us is an occasion to cry for his help and leave the vengeance to him. Augustine says of this, before we go off into darkness, our eye is confused by anger. We must be careful that anger does not develop into hatred and blind us. Nor should we Engage in the persecution of our enemies. It does not say, Blessed are you when you persecute those who hate your righteousness. It does not say that. It says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness. As Christ went to the cross for us and was slaughtered on our behalf, so we are as regarded as sheep for the slaughter, says Romans and Christ brings meaning to all this because he was abandoned for our sake, like uh, as as the fulfillment of what this psalm is addressing, because he was forsooken on our on our sake, because he was reproached for our sake. Because of our iniquity. And thus, from that, we can say, Be gracious to me, O Lord. And that we understand now that we are not the supposedly righteous Pharisee, but we are that tax collector. Then in verses 14 through 18, in the next section, we have an expression now of the psalmist expressing confident trust in God. We saw, first of all, was this cry of distress. Now we have a cry of confidence of expressing of expressing God is able to rescue. God is able to save. God is able to help. He says the, that all important word at the beginning of verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. In spite of all this that I have said, in spite of all these difficulties, in spite of the, my adversaries coming against me. He says, I trust in you. I think of Hezekiah when I think of this. Hezekiah. Hezekiah. It was one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Hezekiah uh, came into the um, <clears throat> throne of uh, was an heir of the throne of David, he became king. And he called upon Israel to be true to the covenant after having read God's law and reinstituted the proper worship of God Though we didn't tear down the high places. And part of that involved a, a, and there was some things that happened uh, which he didn't always do right. But Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came against him and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And he sent a letter. Sennacherib did. And he basically said, Why do you trust your God? Look around you. You're surrounded. Your God has failed you. And Sennacherib said, I trust him. I mean, Hezekiah said, I trust in God and lay that letter before the Lord and Israel that day was delivered. But we see that he affirms this confession. I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. What is he doing here when he says you are my God? My times in your hand. He is making a confession about who God is. He's confessing his faith. He is stating who God is. You are my God. My times are in your hands. He's taking biblical teaching and confessing the truth of it. It's so important that we confess the truth of Scripture and that we internalize it. When he says, my times, he says, you are my God. He's expressing here a statement of confidence, a confidence in God's covenant faithfulness. He says, God, on account of the covenant. But he also confesses another truth. My times are in your hand. He affirms the providential care of God, who is working out all things to the praise of his glory. My times are in your hand. And we are in a time, as is quite often, and not just in the last uh, most recent number of years, however you would say recent number of years, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 20, 30. Where Christians, at least in our particular context, we seem to get into a great sense of angst A great sense of hand-wringing, pearl-clutching, so to speak. Election season. We must confess this, my times are in your hands. There's anyone who should not be pearl-clutching, metaphorically speaking, filled with angst and hand-wringing. It should be those who know God and our Lord Jesus Christ who are able to say my times are in your hands. I say this to myself as much as I say this to you all. My wife knows. (laughs) We must confess my times in your hands in the midst of his perceived distress and the acknowledgement of his grief and concern. He tempers it and tames it with, my times are in your hands. He's acknowledging this situation and saying, this is in your hands. This is not outside of your purposes and outside of your work. His hand is involved in the situation in which he finds himself. And our hands are in, always in the situation in which his hand is involved. The times in which we live. I've heard people say. In many times in many years. I wish I lived in a different time. Our times are in his hands. The times in which we live. The country in which we live. And the times in which we live. Also we need to understand. Are but a drop from a bucket. In light of God and His providence and His history, sometimes it might be hard to hear for people in their own country to hear that their country is but a drop in a bucket, but that is true. And we get the sum now of His cry for grace again, for He's appealing to God on the basis of grace. Which he says, I trust in you. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. For when he says save me in your steadfast love, it's a recognition of his need for God's love. In rescuing him from his persecutors, he's seeking for God to act according to his steadfast love. When he says, make your face shine upon your servant, it's the idea of turning Toward me from being turned away from me. Make your face shine. Turn your face upon us. Again, on what basis is the salvation for which he's appealing? And rescue for our psalmist. But he says, save me in your steadfast love. I can only imagine the repeated refrain of something that we see in psalm 136 would be present to him psalm 136 is a fun psalm to do responsively with this repeated refrain, re- refrain give thanks to the lord for he is good then he says for his steadfast love endures forever and they go then says give thanks to the god of gods why for his steadfast love endures forever and over and over and over again. How long does a steadfast love last? Forever. What kind of love is his love? It is steadfast, it means it's enduring. Or another word that I like to use indefatigable. Indefatigable. It means it cannot be fatigued. For the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So knowing that, he says, save me according to your steadfast love. For he is in covenant with God. And he sees God's love. He's asking again not so that he won't be shamed but rather that the wicked be shamed to go to the place of punishment of eternal punishment that is also that lying lips would be put to silence that they would no longer <clears throat> and they would they would have that see i told you so moment Now we oftentimes view this kind of this kind of uh, rescue me from shame and let the wicked be shamed and let the let their lips be silenced. We oftentimes view that primarily in terms of right here and right now. And then when it doesn't happen, we say, "What happened, God? Did God lose?" Rather, we need to view this from the standpoint from the standpoint of biblical theology that it's founded upon what we would call an eschatological hope. That is the end of all things, when Christ comes back for us. There may be times when we see a taste of this, but this is looking towards the end. Augustine says of this in his commentary on this psalm. You may know him as Augustine. And he says, when will such lips be struck dumb in this age? Never. Daily, they rant against Christians, especially the lowly ones. They blaspheme daily. Every day they bark their insults. Where is your God? What do you worship? What do you see? You believe, yet you have a hard life. Your hard life is certain. But what do you what? But what you hope for is far from certain. But when that certainty for which we hope has become real, those lying lips will be struck dumb. For there is coming a day in which our Lord Christ will be vindicated and we shall be vindicated. That means things made right. You see our, our own Lord Jesus Christ, he demonstrated His God's steadfast love for us in his humiliation in his life. His death and his burial. For in his distress. While he had no need of grace as he had no sin. He appealed for and brought grace to us in himself. And he was heard on account of his own reverence as the book of Hebrews says. And he was indeed saved by the love of God in his resurrection. When he was went on that day that that. That cry which was not hear, heard by any ears, but all creation has heard through what has occurred. When the father spoke to the son, arise, my son. And he rose from the dead. And so he redeems us by the steadfast love of God. And so we indeed now we have the wherewithal. That's another favorite word of mine. We have the wherewithal now to appeal to God for his love to operate for us on our behalf. To help us to make sense of things. To see him in the middle of things. To live in the hope of resurrection. and While expecting, we also while expecting that those opposing and hating Christ and desiring that, the, and desiring that we will be vindicated, things being made right, are to have a disposition to. Towards them, tempered by that love that has been de- demonstrated for us. For we must recognize where our enemies truly are and what they where they lie. When we view our human enemies, we should look at them. We should have a perspe- uh, perspective of, as Jesus commanded us and as Paul commanded us, of love for our enemies, feeding them and giving them to drink and sharing. Love of Christ with them The greatest vindication we can have With regards to Those who oppose God Even those who Have brought us great harm in the name of Opposing Christ Is for them to know the love of God in Christ Jesus and to be called Our brother and our sister Like Christ In his humility prayed Father Forgive them the year 2000, I had the opportunity to visit India. I went to the northeastern state. If you think of India, if you know, can th- visualize the map, you have India, you have Bangladesh over here, and there's a little hook that wraps around Bangladesh. That's northeast in the state of Manipur. And I visited a group of people known as the Nagas. Uh, sub-tribe of the Nagas and there was war going on rebellion going on against India and sometimes India would the Indian army would take out their frustrations against the uh, civilians in those cities they would raid churches during their meetings and commit all sorts of of abominable acts as the Nagas are about 95 percent profess Christ And I said, how do you respond? And at that time I was angry and I said, I wanted to grab a rifle and start shooting Indian Army people. That was just my reaction. And they said, we pray that they might know the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that that was something that really threw me for a loop. Augustine warns us from his commentary on this psalm. He says, we have to distinguish between enemies for whom we must pray and enemies against whom we must pray. Human enemies of whatever kind are not to be hated, lest when a good person hates a bad person who is causing trouble, the result is two bad people. When we think of destruction of our enemies, we must also remember it in the context Of what it is against which we struggle. Our struggle is not against. A particular group of people. Nor is it against factions of people. Nor is it against even political factions of people. To define our struggle in those terms. Is to be no better than those who rework the gospel into a project for social reform. And yes. That applies across the ideological spectrum. Nor, and I address this because I know in our own circumstances, this is something that many care about, nor is our struggle as the church about saving America. Right now, there's a whole traveling road show that's all about that. And it is a mockery of the gospel. It is a blasphemous circus of false prophets, false prophecy and charismatic chaos, flirting with strange fire. That is not where our struggle lies. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And my heart breaks at how people are falling prey to such deception to the detriment of their faith. Recognizing, not recognizing who our enemies actually are. When the Apostle Paul warns us how careful we must be to guard against those enemies, he is speaking to God's servants, Augustine says, who are being harassed and probably by the factions and dishonesty and hostility of human beings. Yet he says to them, it is not against flesh and blood that you have to struggle Not against human enemies, then, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this world, whose aim it is to pervert the worship of God, to corrupt it. This is me to corrupt God's churches with subtle temptations that sound like they're righteous and to turn us but one degree off course. Those of you in the Navy know one degree may not sound much, but those of you who are in the Navy you're going on a three thousand mile boat trip and you're one degree off course, or those of you who fly planes, you go on a long trip, or if you float or if you've been on a plane and you're on a long trip and you're one degree off course and don't correct, you're going to end up where you intended to go? No. Beware of the ways that the devil will use the righteous concerns we have to our detriment. We can and must pray for deliverance from our persecutors without ourselves returning the favor. Recognizing that our hope for vindication, our hope is eschatological at the end when all things happen. And We can view the, uh, the idea of lips being silenced with regards to those human enemies as them coming to repentance and coming to faith in Christ. Now enjoying the favor of God in Christ Jesus. Our Lord's work also heightens our sense of being in his hand. For we are in his hand redemptively in the loving hand of grace and care. And we are promised that none shall remove us from his hand. Not only are our times in his hand in the sense of providence. Providence. But our times are in in his hand in the sense of our redemption. We are in his hand and he will not remove us from his hand. Our times eternally are in his hand. And the verses 19 and 20, he then has a closing word of praise and a call to join in that praise It's a recollection in verses 19-20 of God's goodness and mercy. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Here the psalmist recognizes the great goodness of God. Though he's afflicted by his enemies... And his own iniquity plagues him. Of this he is sure. God is good. Of that he is sure. God is good. How abundant is your goodness. And our sin and our iniquity cannot outdo his goodness. And outdo his mercy. Cyril. Last couple of sermons you're probably recognizing I've been reading some church fathers. Cyril, pastor of the church in Jerusalem in the mid-three hundreds. He said God is loving to man and lo- loving to man and loving in no small measure. For say not I have committed fornic for for say not I have committed fornication and adultery. I have done dreadful things, and not once only, but often will he forgive. He says, Don't say I've committed all these things, and God will does God have it in Him to forgive Him? Will He grant pardon? Hear what the Psalmist says: How great is the multitude of Your goodness, O Lord? Your accumulated offenses surpass don't surpass the multitude of God's mercy. Your wounds surpass do not your wounds do not surpass the great physician's skill. Only give yourself up in faith. Tell the physician your ailment, and say also, like David, I said, I will confess my sin unto the Lord. The same shall be done in your case, which he says forthwith, and you forgave the wickedness of my heart. Once again, we must be convinced of the goodness and the grace of God. And we when we only see that in Christ, not in our riches, not in our successes, not in our health, not in our favorite sports team, sporting it better than the other sports teams. Not in our influence, not in our supposed righteousness, not in power, but solely in the grace of God manifested to us in Christ Jesus. And then we see, for whom does God work? For whom does he work, does he say? He works in those who take refuge in him. What is it to take refuge in him and work for those who take refuge in him? What is it to take refuge in him? It's being hidden in him. It is being protected by him. It's true of us in Christ Jesus for Colossians 3.3 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden and shielded from the enemy's tongues. It does not mean that the believer never hears them. Nor does it mean that we never encounter unrighteousness. Or that we get to be shielded and sheltered and never get to and, and never have to encounter unrighteous activities. For if we are to do so, we would have to but stay in home and close the windows close the blinds never turn on the internet but then of course we will look in the mirror and we will still see it we are sh- hidden and shielded from the enemy's tongues and from the enemy's attacks does not mean that we never hear them it means they don't have the final say another church father Gregory of Nyssa he says God's abounding goodness aids us in a hidden way and in the present life it is not clearly evident for every objection of unbelievers would be removed could we actually see what we only hope for but our hopes await the ages to come so that there may yet then be revealed what at present our faith alone apprehends our faith alone sees it but one day it shall be clear and it shall be seen with absolute clarity that we have been shielded by him. Then in verses 21 and 22, he closes with a recollection of, God, recollection of God's faithfulness and steadfast love. Doesn't close there, but he, he continues with a recollection of, God, recollection of God's faithfulness and steadfast love. See, David, in his own distress, he says, God has wondrously shown his steadfast love. He recounts God's deliverances. He sensed, as was said earlier, that God has turned from him, and he cried out to him. And God answered. For he says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard my voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. And God answered. So think of this, while we might find ourselves surrounded by evil or even bound up with evil in our own hearts and those who oppose Christ, we are surrounded by and enclosed in God's constant and everlasting kindness. We are hidden in him. Thus, we have nothing to fear. Contrary to what someone said in the past, we don't even have to fear fear. We have nothing to fear, and we are freed from the pursuit of self-interest to the pursuit of the great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are hidden in him and shielded. We We are not cut off from his sight, Because we're in Christ Jesus, though may it appear, though it may appear so we are in Christ and we are in his sight and his face is turned towards us. And in verses 23 and 24, we have a call to all the saints. In which he says, love the Lord, all you his saints, the Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Now we see that David doesn't want to keep the praise just to himself, but rather wishes for God's people to join with him. You see, it's not just about his, or nor, nor for us, about our private relationship with Jesus, but the, about the fact that we join in together in honoring God. Our sadness and our joys are bound up with one another. The Christian church is one of solidarity. We are eternally united to one another and where one when one rejoices we all rejoice when one mourns we all mourn when one praises we all praise when one suffers we all suffer you did not create us you did not create us in his creation for us to be People walking around in vacuums, isolated from one another. But nor has, and he does not has not done so in our redemption. See, Christ redeemed a people who had joined together in praising God and loving Him and declaring His excellencies. And while we see this, the Lord repays the one who acts in pride. What does He repay him with? With judgment. He repays the, those who are guilty of arrogance. As God loathes that transgression being the foundation of all other transgressions. Arrogance and pride. And that shall come. We shall have that vindication. But in so doing, we must, in waiting, we, we also must be sure that we don't become the prideful and Arrogant. With a closing exhortation, he reminds us to, to, to be strong. But he defines that strength in this term wait for the Lord. However, where is our strength? It's taking refuge in God, and not in mustering something in and of ourselves. You and I, we have no bootstraps by which to pick, by which to pick up ourselves. Our strength and our courage is found in this, waiting for the Lord. That's trusting in Him, looking to Him. That is where our strength is, and recognizing our weakness. <clears throat> our strength and our courage is found in waiting in Him, in hoping in Him, trusting Him, resting in Him, and receiving from Him. And from there, we can hear God's law and implement it in our lives. So, brothers and sisters, We might have many reasons by which we might find ourselves in in distress, difficulty. We must be wary of thinking of our distress as greater than another brother's because it seems to be greater or another sister. But let us remember that in the midst of that distress, we have a God who has sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has died for us let us remember, my brothers and sisters, that though the enemy plagues us, the enemy being the the world, the flesh, and the devil, we have every reason to trust in the Lord. We have every reason to pray that those humans who may oppose us, that they might join us in praising God, that they might join us as brother and sister. So let us take heart. There is coming a day in which all the lips shall be silenced. There's coming a day in which. The arrogant shall get what is due. Let us trust in the Lord and look to that day. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your care, your goodness, your compassion. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to rest in that knowing That were it not for that, we would be under the curse of the law. We would be under your wrath. We would be under for not having met your holiness. And so we pray, our Father, that you would help us, like David, to cry out, Be gracious to me, O Lord. Save us in your steadfast love. We pray these things, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.